Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. As a 12-year-old kid in 1992, Adam Petty was always the center of attention. He was a mischievous pain in the butt. Family members often wanted to wring his neck. He never really did enough to get in serious trouble, just enough to irritate, like fingernails on a chalkboard. That same fun-loving prankster once told eight-time championship-winning crew chief Dale Inman he was going to be the future of Petty Enterprises. Inman replied, I think I need to find a new job. Then when he turned 15, a miraculous transformation occurred. Adam got serious and announced he wanted to be a race car driver. He proved he had the talent behind the wheel, winning in bandoleros at Charlotte Motor Speedway before graduating to late model stocks on short tracks around his hometown of High Point, North Carolina. From there, he won a 300-lap American Speed Association event at I-70 Speedway in Odessa, Missouri in June of 1998, as well as a 67-lap ARCA event at Charlotte Motor Speedway on September 30th of 98. That victory featured Adam driving away from the field in dominant fashion, prompting his grandfather, Richard Petty, to say if he had won the Daytona 500 later in his career, it wouldn't have been as big as that win. Adam also had 43 NASCAR Xfinity Cup Series starts, posting three top fives and four top tens. He was showing great promise, possibly ringing true the words he had told Inman years earlier, something about being the future of Petty Enterprises. Fast forward to April 2nd, 2000, when Adam qualified for his first Cup Series event at Texas Motor Speedway. The 19-year-old was already building a large fan following with his easy, down-to-earth home style and ability to drive on the track. There was tremendous hope for the future. Then came that dark day, May 12th of 2000, while practicing at what was then New Hampshire International Speedway, Something went horribly wrong. The throttle in Petty's number 45 Chevrolet got stuck as he entered turn three on the flat one-mile oval, causing him to crash into the outside wall head-on. He suffered a basal skull fracture and died instantly. In the days that followed, devastation and heartbreak blanketed the Petty family as well as the entire NASCAR community. In the blink of an eye, Adam was gone. The pain was heavy and unbearable. In the weeks that followed, one simple note sent to Richard by a fan lifted the weight completely off of his shoulders, and it simply said, never put into question mark where God has put a period. Eleven words that convey so much wisdom. Long live the wonderful memory and amazing smile of Adam Petty. Ben, this is episode 45 of A Lifetime in NASCAR, and I'll tell you, I mean, this 
It's just uh, amazing how these last 14 weeks have gone by. I started with you in episode 31, and these weeks have just flown by. It's like, you know, every time we're doing a show, it's like we keep on topping each other, you know? It keeps on getting better and better and better. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I hope you're enjoying working with me and some of, my corny, some of my corny jokes and that kind of thing, too, as well, too. But, but um, you know, we've got a lot to talk about here in episode 45, but... You know, it would I'd be remiss if I didn't start the show off and I hate to do it on a little bit of a somber note, but, you know, we lost three individuals in the last week that kind of put a little bit of a damper on the uh, Christmas period of time. Uh, All three obviously passing away. Uh, Steve Richards from the Performance Racing Network, a good buddy of ours. He's been in radio for the last probably close to 40 years. And Mm -hmm. um, Steve. um, I got a nice note from his boss, Doug Rice of the Performance Racing Network earlier today, because uh, I had reached out to Doug and you know expressed my condolences. And uh, Steve, you know, it was one of those situations where he had had a, he just like he was there and boom, he was gone. And unfortunately, he was one of those um, uh, victims of the COVID, um, uh, you know, um, COVID nineteen p- pandemic, and uh, just way too young to pass away. Sixty two years old, great guy, and. Um, you know, we'll talk about him a little bit more here in a second, but we also lost Martha Earnhardt, who obviously was um, uh, Dale Earnhardt's mother and the, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s mother, rather. And then um, uh, we also lost Hill Overton, uh, you know, uh, Pat Patterson, uh, another one of our good buddies, you know, was very effusive about um, and explanative about Hill Overton and the just the the. Um, the impact he had on the world of NASCAR as well, too, from the, the, you know, from the media side as well. So, you know, it's really a somber Christmas for uh, a number of families. And, um, but, um, you know, hopefully they're all, you know, in a, you know, the proverbial better place, but, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about Steve Richards first, because, you know, Steve, when I got back into NASCAR, I, I had been off for several years. And when I got back into covering it back in 2001, I'll never forget. He was one of the first guys that came up to me and said, you know, he introduced himself to me and said, Hey, anything you need, anything, you know, I can help you with, you know, don't ever hesitate to, to uh, ask me. And, you know, the guy always had a smile on his face, always had a smile on his face. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, I've I've got to tell my, this is my favorite Steve Richards story, but it's kind of a melancholy story too, as well. Um, Steve was born in uh, near Baltimore and grew up in near Baltimore and he was obviously a big Baltimore Orioles fan. And Steve, like myself and like a lot of other people, you know, we collected baseball cards and we still do collect baseball cards to this day. And I'll never forget that I, I made the mistake, I guess, of mentioning to Steve that I had this vintage collection of baseball cards from the 60s, 70s and into the 80s. And he said, oh, yeah. He says, do you have any, you know, baseball cards from the Orioles, like, you know, Boog Powell, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Jim Palmer? I go, yeah, I've got all those guys. And he said, don't ever sell them. Let me know before you sell me. So I'll buy them from you. And, you know, it's funny because now I'm getting ready to get rid of, you know, get rid of some of my sports collection because we're going to try to start downsizing here a little bit. And he, I was going to reach out to him and say, hey, do you still want those baseball cards? And that's when I found out of his, um, his passing and, I mean, that was just a kick in the gut because I was so looking forward to, you know, finally getting to, to telling him that I was getting ready to sell the cards. And he, you know, he wanted every, every time he see me, you say, Hey, how about them cards? How about them? You know, <laughs> are you ready to sell them? That kind of thing. So, uh, but you know, Steve was just, 
he was a pro's pro. I mean, Mark Garrow in his Facebook post that announced uh, Steve's passing, you know, it was just so um, said it perfectly. Mark, you know, is obviously a wordsmith and he really uh, nailed it with, you know, his, his take on Steve Richards. I mean, they were like brothers. I mean, Steve and Mm -hmm. where, you know, where Mark ended, Steve began and where Steve ended, Mark began, you know, that kind of thing. So I know Mark's been taking this uh, quite hard as is everybody at PRN, Doug Rice, like I said. Um, And, you know, it's just, it's sad to lose somebody like that. And then, you know, Martha Earnhardt, she passes away a couple of days ago. And, uh, and then we lost Hill Overton as well, too. So, you know, the old cliche is, you know, death comes in three. Well, this is kind of another example that we lost three people that were important to the NASCAR community. Um, and, you know, sadly, they all are no longer with us. So yeah. What, what, yeah. What, are your, what are your thoughts about Steve and Martha and, and Hill? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we need to, uh, actually, we need to add one more to that, which is Randy Earnhardt. Oh, that's right. Uh, right. Yeah. And we lost Randy too. And I, you know, it's just, I think I, as I was telling you before we came on the broadcast here too, that it's almost, I get to where I just don't want to look at Jayski anymore almost because it's just, gosh, it's just, you know, and they're great to announce to everyone you know, and that we, when we lose someone and they're awesome uh, to let us be, in, you know, help us to be informed about things. But, well, I mean, talking about Steve, uh, Steve, and I'd, I'd known Steve from, gosh, I guess about 30 years, really. And, and we would always talk memorabilia because we'd see each other in media centers and he was very well versed about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, you know, when we, we moved from uh, in town in Salisbury out to the country and, and I had a collection of model cars, the plastic kits and no kidding. I probably had about 1500 kits. 1500? Yeah. 1500 Whoa. kits, believe it or not, I did. Whoa. And, you know, I really was in a dilemma because I really had nowhere to put them. And honestly, I had nowhere to store them. And so I told Steve that one day, he said, well, let me see what you have. And that was, that was a typical line with Steve. Let me see what you have. Cause he was <laughs> right, all the time right. looking at, at, uh, whether it be baseball cards, whether it be models, whether it be car actual cars. And he had this prize 69, uh, Camaro that he was restoring, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, an olive green card. That's another story. But, um, uh, so he came to the house one day and he said, Oh my Lord, <laughs> You do have a collection of models. So as it turned out, he actually bought them from me. Really? And uh, he sure did. And uh, so we worked out a deal. Actually, he, he came to the house, the other house we were moving from, and uh, he, he bought them, and, which was great because I really had nowhere to put them. He was like a kid on Christmas. He, he uh, wanted to see what I had. And, and uh, so I remember we loaded his, his truck and his van, anybody with a car, basically a friend come <laughs> over and, and just packed their cars with these models. And so, but yeah, he would come over and we would, uh, had lunch together several times and, uh, we just, you know, talked memorabilia, talked racing. And one of the stories I remember him telling me that meant so much to him, 1985, Bill Elliott was getting ready to go for the Winston million at Darlington. And he was, uh, there to do some work. Uh, for Performance Racing Network, even though the Motor Racing Network was doing the broadcast. And he was just standing there on pit road, actually on the, the front stretch. And he was, uh, I think, getting ready to talk to Bill Elliott in the, in the car. Mm-hmm. And he, he was just thinking, you know what? This is so cool to be out here. I think it was the Southern 500, if I'm not mistaken. 
but he was talking to Bill Elliott at one of these races and Bill had the, the, uh, the screen net down and he's sitting there in the car and they're just having a conversation. They're like five minutes before the race, three minutes before the race. I guess it may not have been the Southern 500 because it would not have been a PRN race, but he's standing there just, you know, by the car and Bill's like, so what'd you do this week? And Steve's like, <laughs> Steve's like, oh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I did some things around the house and wrecked some leaves and worked on a gutter or two. And Bill's like, yeah, I had a fence to fix. And this, and he's like, Bill, you're just about ready to do 200 miles an hour on this race car. And they were just having this pleasant conversation. Is that, and Bill's like, well, I guess I better put the screen net up. I'm about to go racing and that kind of thing. And he's like, Bill. I mean, here we are standing here, you know, it was just so amazing the way he told the story. And he's like, I'm standing here in the middle of the racetrack talking to Bill Elliott, who's on the pole. And we're standing here talking about what we did last week. And all of a sudden this man's going to get out here and just mix it up or 39 or 40 or 41 other cars. He said, that was the most amazing conversation I think I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And we were just, he was just so amazed at how cool and calm Bill was sitting in the car, like they were st standing in a grocery store parking lot. And, uh, you know, it was just so amazing. But Steve was such an amazing announcer and such an amazing friend. And I, I just, I was like you, I, I was praying so hard that he could come out of this. And we kept getting updates about his condition from Mark Garrow. And then I was so saddened to learn that he had passed. And wow, like you, just such a, just an overwhelming sadness that I felt. But yeah, Mark, Steve was such a great friend for so many years. And But I the one thing I remember about Steve is he would, he would always walk up to my station in the media center and he'd just say, so what have you bought lately? What have you collected lately? What, are, what's, you know, what, what kind of sheet metal have you gotten lately or whatever? He was always about collecting something and finding right. that deal on something. And that was his passion. That was his, that was the thing he loved most. And I, I miss him terribly, but as I've said many times on the podcast, the guys that are in the in the industry who have done races on radio or have had appearances on television, it's so wonderful to be able to go back and listen to the voices of races that they've called. And we'll never, we will never forget Steve. And, and the beauty of it is we can go back and listen to his voice and, and listen to his craft and listen to what he's done for so many years and how wonderfully, brilliantly he did it. And he was very, very good at what he did. Very, very eloquent. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, you know, Steve was just, a, you know, like I said it earlier, I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw the guy without a smile on his face. He was just, mm -mm. you know, in, in, you know, he and um, a few of the other guys like Steve Post, another guy that uh, is, um, they were very close to, you know, they worked together and they're friends. And both of them would always say, living a dream. That's what we're doing. Hey, Jerry, how's it going? Living a dream. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. And exactly right. I forgot that. But he yeah. did. He always said, living the dream. Living That's the right. Dream. Yep. But I mean, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, he's gone so early. I mean, 62 years old. I mean, it just, mm -hmm. it, it's, and, and the, the sad part about it was, is that apparently from the way I read uh, one of the stories about him was that he um, apparently was put into it, a medically induced coma right around his birthday, which I think was December 8th or 9th, I think it was. And then the 22nd, he, or 23rd, whatever day was he, you know, we, we lost Steve and, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's really hitting me 
it just as we're talking here, it's hitting me even more than it's already hit me because, I mean, we weren't super close like, you know, he and Mark Gero were, but we were always had a, um, you know, a, a friendship, you know, we always had an acknowledgement of each other. And, you know, there's a lot of people in this business that, you know, you and I well know that they don't worry about anything other than number one. And Steve was not that way. He would give you the shirt off his back, just like mm-hmm. Mark Garrow, you know, just like Doug Rice. Sure. Would do. Absolutely. Mean, just like, you know, you would do it to me and I would do it to you as well too. And, mm-hmm. you know, Steve also, you know, he was kind of like a Renaissance man. You mentioned about the Camaro. I always wanted to see that car. He talked about that so lovingly. He did. But he also, and this is kind of um, uh, an irony of sorts, that he also was a cat person, but he rescued cats. You know, we hear about yes. people that are you know foster dogs and or rescue dogs. Well, he rescued and, and fostered cats. And um, you know, I mean, at our height in here in the family, here we had I think seven cats at one time, and now we've got two, and we've got three dogs still. But um, you know, we would talk about cats as well too. And Steve was just mm-hmm. like I said, kind of like a Renaissance guy. I mean, you know, no matter what the topic was he would be able to talk very uh, eloquently about it. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, remember this name, uh, Ben, but there was a broadcaster here in the 50s, 60s, 70s, a baseball broadcaster. Uh, I believe he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame is Bob Elson. And he was, you mm-hmm. know, very well known with the Chicago White Sox. And I took a class of his at Columbia College when I was in, in undergrad school. This was back in 75 or 76, I think it was. And he he said something that, I once told this story to Steve and he said, that's exactly, you know, his philosophy as well. You know, uh, Bob Elson said, you know, I can say, or I, I want to learn a little bit about everything rather than know everything about a little bit. He said, mm-hmm. he wanted to be that's totally, a great strategy. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and I told that to Steve and he said, yep, that's the way he is too. So, I mean, we could talk about, uh, you know, sports we could talk about the weather we could talk about racing we could talk about politics we could talk about the news he was a and that's another thing too even though you know he made his living in the motorsports world he was a voracious news guy i mean he loved you know whatever was going on in the world i mean we would talk you know many times just about you know the the craziness of the world or you know uh, you know personalities in the, in the world or or the you know big news stories in the world too so just it just I'm really sad to to lose him because like I said he he was way too early to leave us but um, it just makes you further appreciate how how you know short and how fragile life can be I mean here's a guy mm-hmm. that you know I, I from what I understand he got sick about six or seven weeks ago before that he was doing fine and mm-hmm. then you know he just suddenly got sick and then COVID came in and that was that was unfortunately the the beginning of the end for, for Steve Richards. So um, yes, sad, sad uh, to leave, to, to lose him. But anyway, let's, let's move on to, uh, you know, this is episode 45 of a lifetime in NASCAR. And uh, we uh, obviously, we always relate the episode number to a car number, <clears throat> excuse me. And of course, week 40, episode 45, we will talk about the 45 in NASCAR. And, you know, we, we've got, I want to get into some of the other drivers that carry this number, but you know, Ben, we we would also be remiss if we didn't talk about somebody who passed away that was very well known and was just, you know, up and coming, if you will, in the number 45. And that was Adam Petty. Uh, you know, tell us about I mean, you have a lot of stories to tell us about Adam. Tell us about, uh, you know, his, you know what he did in, in his 
um, you know, very brief time. I mean, it's been 21 years since we lost him. I, I still can't get over it. It's been four, 21 years since, since we lost Adam Petty. It's, it's really, yeah, it's really difficult to, to imagine it's been that long. But yeah, as I said in the piece uh, uh, leading in, the, you know, Kyle, I mean, uh, Adam, uh, and Kyle said this many times to me. He said that, uh, you know, uh, Adam was one of those guys that you just wanted to pinch his head off most of the time growing up because <laughs> he was all the time, uh, in trouble with something, not enough to really get mad at him, but just enough, uh, just to just irritate, just irritation to death. I mean, he was just right in the middle of something all the time. And, but Kyle couldn't really say a whole lot about being in the middle of something because Kyle was very much that way growing up. Like the time when his grandfather Lee had just poured concrete, uh, for a new part of petty enterprises, uh, and of course, what did Kyle do? He just gathered up all the neighborhood dogs and ran the dogs through the concrete just before <laughs> it got, got dry. He did that one time. And then there was a time when Kyle, uh, when all, when Lee and, and Richard and Maurice had gone to the racetrack and Kyle figured out where the keys were to Lee's brand new, uh, lawnmower. And when I say brand new in 1970s, probably like a $600 mower, which is today probably about a $3,000 mower. Mm-hmm. And of course, what did he do? He put it in high gear and ran it into an oak tree. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was something Kyle did. And he's like, holy crap. Now what am I going to do? But grandpa, uh, grandfather Lee gets home and sees this thing in a million pieces. So we couldn't say a whole lot to Adam because Adam was doing the same thing Kyle was, but, you know, he, like I said, he walks into, to, uh, to petty enterprises one day and says, I'm going to be the future of, of petty enterprises. And that's basically what he did. And he, at 14, 15 years old, he got very serious about his racing and the Bandoleros late models. And then, I mean, he set the world on fire at a very short amount of time. He knew exactly what to do inside of a race car. And Kyle even said he was a way better driver than I was at, at a young age. And he was really starting to take off as a driver and the people working for Petty Enterprises were thinking, you know what, we've got a future now. We, there was a time, you know, there was a lull at Penny, Petty Enterprises where they weren't really sure where they were going or what they were going to do. And suddenly Adam shows up. And it's in the same respect, a, a young Jeff Gordon shows up at Hendrick Motorsports. They're thinking, Adam Petty, uh, you know, you're the next, you really are the next superstar that's going to bring Petty Enterprises back into the fold and bring sponsorship money back to us. And, and you're the next generation. And as I said in the piece, the fourth generation, only fourth generation uh, athlete in the world, and that's, that's very impressive behind grandfather Lee and uh, great grandfather Lee and grandfather Richard and father Lee. I mean, think about the mag- magnitude of that. And then sadly they, he, he made the, the, the one start at Texas in the cup series did rather well. Had, had they not had engine issues, he probably would have done better. I mean, you know, he, he did perform well that day. And then sadly uh, the throttle six open in the car at New Hampshire in practice and in a blink of an eye, he's gone. May 12th, 2000, we lost Adam. Uh, Richard was in the shop that day in the body shop. He gets a call from Mike Hilton uh, telling him that Adam has had a horrific crash at New Hampshire and it doesn't look good. Richard goes back to the house and basically falls to his knees when he finds out that, that Adam has passed. 
and cries. I mean, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's, it's the worst scenario. And, you know, and Jerry, I would not wish this upon anyone ever. I mean, I, I, I couldn't imagine losing my son, Aaron, or you losing your children. I mean, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And in this case, it would be a grandson to Richard, of course, and a son to Kyle. But I mean, here's a kid I'm, I'm going on and on here, but this is a kid that I never, ever hardly saw Adam not smiling and kidding and joking about something. He was a, he was such full of life and, and ready to turn a cartwheel at any second. I mean, this kid was just full of life. I don't know how else to say it. And very talented as a race driver, a lot of fun to be around picking with the guys who are filming him always at the racetrack. And just, but again, his whole life was just go, 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 go. And then suddenly darkness. And again, as I said in the piece, what Richard, the note, this fan sent to Richard, it basically in, in saying this, it said, uh, you know, don't, don't put a question mark where God has put a period. And that, that is such a statement. I mean, it, it, in that there's nothing, 11 words, there's nothing more to say because it was God's will for this child to go home to heaven. I mean, there's no question. How, how do you question that sentence? And after Richard read that and heard that, he said, that's what got me through. I mean, it's never easy to see a child pass before you you do, but I mean, there's, you don't have answers. There's nothing to more that you can reason it out, but Adam was gone and it changed everything. But man, you talk about a kid that just made you smile when you didn't want to smile. He would, you walked up to him and he's like, what is up? What is, up? you know, he's just making you smile every time you got around him. And I'm so, even today, I just, I'm so sad that he, he was not here to, to, to meet his full potential as a driver, as a father, as whatever. I mean, he just, he was such a great kid. Well, you know, you, you wonder what could have been if he had mm -hmm. not been in that, that uh, tragic crash. I mean, what would it have meant for petty enterprises? I mean, could he be, you know, could he, I mean, obviously once, uh, when they'd already been struggling ever since Richard's uh, retirement, but, you know, just like they, they were, you know, really hopefully pinning a lot of the hopes of the organization on uh, his, his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And when he was tragically taken from us, it, it, I think it really devastated, not just Richard and, and the family, but certainly the, the organization as a whole, because, you know, this was the future of petty uh, motorsports and then, or petty enterprises at the time. And, um, you know, he was taken from us, but, you know, one thing I was going to mention, Ben, <clears throat> excuse me, Adam's passing was actually part of probably the darkest one year that NASCAR has ever seen in its history. And I know that's a very bold statement to say that, but we lost Adam Petty. Uh, I think it was like two months later, I believe it was, we lost Kenny Irwin also at New Hampshire uh, uh, International Speedway at the time. It now became New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Uh, he was uh, killed in a crash there. We lost Tony Roper at Texas Motor Speedway later in the year. And then, of course, on February 18th of 2001, we lost Dale Earnhardt at the, mm -hmm. in the final lap of the Daytona 500. That was, you know, to, to lose the first three gentlemen, you know, Adam Petty, Kenny Irwin, and Tony Roper, 
was bad, you know, it was bad in, in and of its entirety. But when we lost Dale Earnhardt, to me, those three gentlemen that preceded Earnhardt in death, their death was not, you know, uh, meaningless. It, it, it meant something because NASCAR realized, especially once Na uh, Earnhardt was killed, that they had a huge problem with safety. And they, you know, they had tried to address it over the years, but never really gotten to the point where it became, you know, to use the old cliche from, uh, was it Ford, I think it was, was job one, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, they, they had to change the safety of the cars, you know, the, the make the drivers safe behind the wheel. And yes, we've, we've had a couple of instances over the last, well, 20, uh, 21 years since we, or 20 years since we lost uh, Dale Sr., uh, where, you know, we had a couple of bad wrecks, um, you know, like uh, um, Jerry Nadeau, he, he had a real bad wreck there. Um, and, but, you know, fortunately he was not killed. But the, the point I'm making is that when we had those three gentlemen precede Dale Earnhardt, and then when Earnhardt was killed, that really got the ball moving to really get the sport into a of a zone of safety has never been before. And, you know, the, the results speak for themselves. I mean, you know, we've, we, we, I mean, how can any other sports say our guys, you know, can walk away from a crash at 210 miles an hour and, you know, just other than maybe a little bump and bruise, they're fine, you know, and that's, that's, so, I mean, to me, Adam Petty, Kenny Roper, I'm sorry, Tony Roper and Kenny Irwin were all part of the equation that, continued on with Dale or senior and really helped change this sport for much for the better. And, you know, had, had we had some of those safety uh, improvements in the cars, you know, uh, prior to those three gentlemen being killed. And then of course, Earnhardt, we may still be talking about all four of them still being with us at this time. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind here. First of all, you go back to 1964, it was almost like uh uh, you know, history repeating itself and what we went through in 2000. Going back to 1964 in January of that year, we lost Joe Weatherly at Riverside, California, right. when he went into turn six and, and hit the outside retaining wall there. Then Jimmy Pardue was testing at Charlotte Motor Speedway that year. We lost him when he crashed and going into turn three, uh, and we lost him. And then there was Fireball Roberts in May of that year at Charlotte. Right. We lost him. And then in January of 1965, uh, Billy Wade was testing tires for uh, one of the tire manufacturers at, at, at Daytona and blew a tire in turn one and lost him. So there were four drivers, prominent drivers uh, that year in, in 64 and then January 65 that uh, we lost. And another thought, talking about Adam Petty, had that tragedy not happened, uh, then would there have there would not probably have been a Richard Petty Motorsports because you know had he been driving for Petty Enterprises he would have been like a Jeff Gordon who would have stayed with as Jeff did with Hendrick Motorsports and would have carried uh, Petty Enterprises all through probably the last twenty years and mm -hmm. his he would be what forty years old now not to, I mean he might have had his entire career with Petty. Uh, enterprises would have continued it on so many things uh, would have happened uh, and, you, and you say woulda coulda shoulda of course uh, it wasn't the way it wasn't the good lord's will for him to be here that long I mean we 
Every, I think, in my opinion, I think our time is numbered. All of us, we're supposed to be here a certain time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it, that's just the way it all worked out. Uh, the positive of it is, again, we've got memories of Adam. The Victory Junction camp was come as a result of his death. It, it started in 2004. Many, many people have been blessed by the creation of, of Victory Junction uh, gang camp. And, you know, I mean, you just got to look for the silver linings and all these things. And that's that's what we all try to do. But, you know, we do sit down and I am I do this a lot. I guess I'm guilty of it. But I just wonder, I, I think, OK, if, if this hadn't happened, this would have happened or what would have happened. Mm-hmm. But you know, that it didn't, but, you know, and it's something else I wanted to talk about just real quick before we move on talking about, I want to say something about Martha Earnhardt too. Um, you know, she taught me something that I, when I was back with NASCAR illustrated, I did a piece about something that she, I mean, first of all, she was a, a wonderful, wonderful lady. And, you know, something that always struck with me is that when she and Ralph Earnhardt were, uh, built a house there and as uh, interesting interestingly enough it was built on the corner of sedan and v8 streets in canapolis <laughs> which i thought was really, really cool <laughs> and that's where they had the the garage behind the house where dale helped you know you know his father and he could tell you know of course the old story about he could tell how he ran the night before by looking at the race car uh, if it was uh, not a lot of dirt on the front of the car, that many was he probably won and he was out front. If there was dirt on the car, that many was running behind. And uh, but yeah, she she was determined not to move. And Dale begged her. He even told me this himself, Dale Senior. He said, "I begged and begged and begged her. I had millions of dollars. I would build her a house. I had the money to build her a house anywhere she wanted to build it." He's like, "Nope." Ralph and I built this house and I want to stay in this house. And it wasn't, sadly, it wasn't in the greatest of neighborhoods. And she wanted uh, to stay right there. And she did until she passed. And it wasn't, it wasn't a real bad neighborhood. It just, you know, it's, it's in in a good, decent neighborhood, I would say, but uh, she just determined to stay there as long as she lived. And that's what she did. And, but what I was going to get back to was that I did a piece on, something that she was famous for and that was her sun drop cakes and she made cake out of sun drop mm-hmm. instead of putting milk or water or whatever she made them out of using sun drop and so she showed me how to do this and it was so cool because she, i said what's the trick she says there's no trick you just where it says put a half cup of milk or water you just put sun drop in there and so the basics of it of the cake was sun drop and then she showed me how to make the icing that you put on the cake out of sun drop and so dale <laughs> loved these sun drop cakes right. and he was he swear by him it's like we gotta go we gotta go to mom's house and we gotta have sun drop cake so all the earnhardt you ask any earnhardt they'll tell you sun drop cake is the way to go sun drop <laughs> by the way for some listeners who don't know what that is it's it's a southern uh soft drink yes and it's you find it around canapolis around concord around the Charlotte area. And, uh, but she may, she, I'm telling you, it's a sweet, you'll become diabetic from it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really sweet, but it's really good. And she, so she gave me the recipe. It's not like a, like a secret chicken recipe or anything. She told me I published it. So there it is. <laughs> but, 
I mean, it's really sugary sweet, and you mix sugar in with the icing and sun drop. Sun drop's sweet anyway. I mean, it keep you up for three days. It's like Mountain Dew <laughs> yeah. almost, you know? Yeah, it's, it's even worse than that, I think. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. But she just, uh, you know, she was very kind to let me know how to do that. So, I mean, she's a, just an incredibly sweet lady, and, and she, was, she went to the same church all her life, and I don't know. I just, you know, it's just, and then we lost, of course, we lost Randy and very soft-spoken guy and worked for Dale Earnhardt, uh, uh, well, Junior Motorsports, I meant to say, and worked worked with Dale Jr. for a lot of years. And he worked in the fab shop and in the chassis shop and just a real down-to-earth guy. And, you know, I just, I'm sad. We've just lost some really cool people to have, uh, not only great people, but just lots of great racing stories. And I don't know, we just, we're just losing some folks. And I'm just sad, you know, that we lost Hill Overton also, yep. who was a great uh, journalist and radio announcer. And he was, gosh, he was here 53 years as an announcer in NASCAR. I worked with a speedway and worked for several radio stations and always eloquently speaking every time you talk to it just great 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 guy so yeah uh just got to get out of this doldrum here but just we've just lost some fine folks in the last week or so we definitely have and you know you you brought up a point that i was going to mention and it it always amazes me how people you know, once they put down roots, they don't leave. And Martha mm-hmm. was in that house. I think I read somewhere, was it 58 or 68 years? I think it was 68 years. Probably. Uh, and, yeah. And, you know, I, I give her such credit because, you know, obviously she carried the married surname of one of the greatest athletes of any sport in, in obviously in the world of NASCAR as well too. Um, and she never let that name you know, overwhelm her. I mean, to her, she was just Dale's, you know, uh, Ralph's uh, wife and Dale's uh, mother. And, you know, uh, that she was in a very modest house, you know, for the majority of her life, you know, like, like you were saying, you know, Dale wanted to build her a new house and she said, no, I'm going to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay here. And, you know, the one thing I, I didn't know Martha, I mean, I just knew her by, you know, reputation stories I read about her and that, but she was kind of the glue for the family, especially when when Dale Sr. passed away. I mean, uh, you know, Dale Jr. was obviously brokenhearted because his father passed away. And Martha was really the one that kind of held. And, and Dale Jr. has said in a number of times that she was the one that kind of held the entire family together. I mean, you know, yes. and, and, you know, it's like you said, I mean, this has been a very, very rough week for for the world of NASCAR. So you know, as, as I usually say around this time of year, especially if it's been a year that's been rough, you know, either uh, for myself or members of the family or people I know, can't wait to get rid of this year. Go on to 2022, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, that's that's the beautiful part about it. And, and we got a tremendous, tremendous memories of all these folks and those, those will never go away. But exactly. at the same time, we... Um, we also have a brand new year that's going to be starting in a few days. And that's when we get to just have our hopes very high and, and just start a brand new year and go from there. Exactly. Well, here's, here's another thing that hopefully will change the somberness to a little bit more of a uh, brightness or a little bit more of a, put a smile on our back on our faces. Hey, it's less than two months. We're going to be racing again. 
You know, yeah. you can't, you can't, oh, yeah. you can't, you can't be looking forward to that. And, and I'm really looking forward to that race out in California at the LA Coliseum. I, I'm, I'm, you know, when I first heard that NASCAR was going to drive, you know, you know run a, the, um, the clash at, at the, the LA Coliseum, it immediately, immediately brought me back to when I was, oh gosh, I must've been three, four, five years old, something like that. They used to actually have stock car races at the old Soldier Field here in Chicago. This was before they redid the, the stadium, what was it, back in the uh, late 80s, I think it was, or 90s, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Um, but I mean, they would actually run races uh, in the infield. And um, I'll never forget, I mean, there was clowns. It's, seriously, there were clowns. It was kind of like almost going to a rodeo where the clowns would be in the infield and they'd be, you know, or they'd be going through the stands. And, you know, I mean, I still kind of remember even here, it's been what, 60 plus years later, I still remember that, you know, and uh, so I'm really looking forward to that uh, situation coming up here in in early February. And uh, I think it's going to be the start of what's going to be one of the more memorable seasons we've had in a long time. I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. 2020 NASCAR got through a very difficult year, you know, with COVID, got to give them a lot of credit for what they did. I mean, even their peers in other sports, you know, kind of constantly applauded NASCAR for, you know, sticking to the 36 race season. And then of course, 2021 was kind of a somewhat of a return to normalcy, if you will. But 2022, I think is going to be a, not only a normal year, it's going to be an even better normal year than, than. Yeah. I, I'm envious of you because I've seen photos of racing there at Soldier Field. And I just think that I would love if, you know, somebody said, okay, you got, well, I'd love to have more than three wishes, but if one of those <laughs> wishes would be, I would love to have just, okay, if you could transport me back to say the 1957 500, or let me go back to a race in each one of these decades, give me seven wishes, maybe five wishes. Right. Let me just go back and let me see what it was like. And that would be one of the races I'd love to go back to soldier field. I've seen some photos of that. And I just think I'd love to see some of those old 49, 50, 51, 55 cars. Yep that were real stock cars just beat the heck out of each other on some of those short tracks, you know, that would be so much fun. And soldier field was, I, I just think, I, you know, I'd heard Fred Lorenzen back in the early nineties, talk about some of those races yep. Yep. and because he's from uh, up in that area and uh, Elmhurst. Elmhurst right. exactly and, right. uh, yeah. I just, I just would, I think that'd be so cool to go back and see some of those races and maybe some of the beach races in Daytona. Anyway, I just think that'd be cool to see. Well, you know, it's it's funny you should say it because every year, uh, we didn't have it in 2020, but uh, we did have it this year. Uh, usually it's the Bristol week, uh, uh, spring Bristol weekend, typically. Uh, I, I think this year was a little bit later, if I remember correctly. But uh, there is a, um, what do they call it? Um, it's a racing memorabilia show. And then the name escapes me, but uh, what the official name of the show is, but they have it at the Will County Fairgrounds here in Illinois, and that's um, in the Piatone, Illinois. And there's a gentleman who always has a table, and he's he he does tremendous business because he has videos of you name it. He's got it. I mean, we're oh, talking, wow. and I'm pretty sure he has videos of those races at Soldier Field. I mean, uh, I remember I, this year's show, I went went there, and I stopped by and talked to him a little bit, and he always has a couple of monitors going on, and he'll have, like, various races 
playing on those monitors. And I mean, it would draw crowds of people not who were just not only there just for, you know, to, to look at the race and memorabilia of everybody else, but, you know, just to stop and watch those monitors for a few minutes and just kind of be transported back in time. So, mm. you know, I'd love that. That'd be I, so much fun to see. I, I, I'm going to see if I can try to track his, not, his name down. In fact, I, I think I know of somebody who would know him. And let me see if I can get his name for you. And, I'd and love see it. If, yeah, because he, he had, I mean, seriously, he had a sheet easily, easily 500 races on there, easily 500 mm. sheet, races. Wow. I mean, there's actually several sheets, you know, of, of all the, all the different races. There were primarily NASCAR. There were some IndyCar races and that kind of thing, but, uh, or cart races back then, USAC races as well too. So let me, let me uh, talk to my buddy. I think, I think I might be able to get that uh, contact information for you. I think that, uh, that, that would, uh, that would, that would grant you one of your wishes. It may not be Good. a person, but you'd, you'll see that on videos. So <laughs> that'd but, be fun. Exactly. Be fun to see. All right. Well, let's get back to talking about, again, about the number 45. And, you know, you, as usual, Ben, you do a, a, a outstanding job, a yeoman's job in getting research on these cars. And the number 45, it, it, it had some significance, but it was not as you know popular, let's say, as the 44 or the 43, but it still was a very prominent part of Petty Enterprise, but it also was a prominent part in, in racing as a whole in NASCAR. Tell, tell us about the 45. Well, yeah, the 45 actually only had just a couple of winners uh, that took it to victory lane. Only two guys, really. There was a guy named Eddie Pagan, and he actually runs some races on the West Coast really a little bit more than what he did uh, on the East Coast, but he did have 54 NASCAR starts. He had one victory in 1956 at a track in California called Bay Meadows. And then in 1957, he won three times at Ascot, uh, California, and twice at Portland, Oregon. But his name is Eddie Pagan. And if some of the uh, uh, people who have followed NASCAR for quite some time might remember him from Hutcherson Pagan, and that was a race uh, car building operation uh, in the early 1970s after uh, Holman Moody uh, closed their doors uh, in 1972. But they actually uh, began uh, uh, building race cars. Uh, Dick Hutcherson and Eddie Pagan began building race cars, uh, like I say, in the early 70s uh, for various race teams. Uh, some of their drivers uh, that bought cars from them, Daryl Waltrip and A.J. Foyt, did that. But, uh, yeah, uh, Eddie Pagan competed in 62, actually, NASCAR Cup Grand National Series uh, races between 1954 and 63. And, uh, sadly, we lost Mr. Pagan uh, August 1st, 1984. He lived in Harrisburg, North Carolina, right outside of Charlotte at the time of his death. But yeah, he, uh, you know, he, like I say, he raced mostly on the, uh, on the West coast. He was born in Midland, Texas. And, uh, yeah, he just, he was, but more so probably known for the cars that he built for some of the other legends, uh, in NASCAR. That's interesting. It's very interesting. And, and you know, um, another gentleman who drove the number 45 and, you know, I'm a Yankee, I gotta admit it. I mean, I'm going to show my, um, uh, my, um, uh, naivete is a good, that's always one of my favorite <laughs> words. Uh, back when I first was getting into NASCAR, this always threw me back in the seventies. It always threw me Leroy Yarborough, Kayla Yarborough, gotta be brothers, gotta be cousins, gotta be some kind of relationships. Well, 
they weren't, they weren't even spelled the name right. And I, it took me years to get that last name spelled right for Leroy because I was always spelling it the way Kale spelled it. It was a little bit different there. But tell us about Leroy uh, Yarbrough because yeah. he also drove the number 45 there too as well. Yeah, he sure did. He actually drove uh, the number 45. They spell their name differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kale uh, and, and Leroy, they're not related. Uh, actually, some people say the name Yarbrough uh, for Leroy. Uh, he was born in... Uh, September 17th, 1938. He passed on December 7th, 1984, but he was actually the first driver to win what's called the Triple Crown in NASCAR, which was the Daytona 500, the World 600, and the Southern 500 at Darlington. And he did that in 1969 while driving for a legendary uh, driver and team owner, Junior Johnson. Uh, Leroy was quite the driver during his career and actually had 198 starts, 14 victories, 65 top fives, 92 top tens, and 10 pole positions. Um, And uh, sadly, uh, we lost him, as I said, 1984. But he had some a crash in 1970 that uh, was rather dramatic and and caused some mental uh, issues, I think, maybe a a pretty bad concussion Mm -hmm. at the time. And and really just did not recover well from that. And, and that led to his demise, like I say, uh, in 1984, but, uh, yeah, quite the driver when he was on top of his game, uh, and very well respected in the NASCAR community. He was a, a winning driver for many years and sadly we lost him that year, but, uh, quite the driver. Uh, he also, uh, had some USAC starts and, uh, actually, and and ran the Indianapolis 500 three times. Right. And, uh, but just just a tremendous driver, and sadly we lost him in the mid, mid early 1980s. Exactly, exactly. And then the the 45 dates back all the way back to 1950. Uh, you were, you mentioned as well too, right? Yeah, sure did. And uh, yeah, and there's a guy named by the name of Tim Chamberlain who uh, started the car of that number in the first 19. 19- 50 Southern 500 uh, and started 12th in that race and finished 34th uh, for the first time right in the car number 45 in that first inaugural Southern 500 at Darlington. And uh, so that's the first time he got on the racetrack in, in NASCAR competition. But you know what? The, the what, what threw me when I was reading your notes here, Ben, or, uh, you know, it, it, before the show, you, you also said that he finished 34th in a 70 car field. I yes, mean, sir. what, I mean, what did they do? They start the cars outside the, the, uh, the, you know, outside the track to get them all on the track at the same <laughs> time. I mean, so I can't even imagine. I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, difficult enough to watch 40 cars. I don't mean difficult in a bad way. I mean, yeah. difficult to, you know, just keep track of 40 cars, but when you had 70 cars on the same 1.366 miles or whatever the length is uh, at Darlington, that egg-shaped track. I mean, that's 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 an incredible um, amount of cars. And, you know, that finishing 34th, yeah, some people may say that's bad, but you know what? That's actually better than 36 other guys who finished behind them, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that particular day, they you're right, and you wonder how could you get that many cars on a one point two five mile track at the time and oh that's actually right yeah it's actually 1.366 miles now but the original track was one a mile and a quarter 
And uh, and that day, they, as it was described to me by the late Junie Donlevy, who was a team owner in NASCAR for decades, he said they were popping tires like popcorn that day because <laughs> they didn't have race tires. It was a, nearly 100 degrees. And what they would do is when they popped tires and they just ran out of tires, they would go out in the infield and they would find a car that matched the car that they were racing on the track and they would go out and and basically take cinder blocks off their their truck and go out and jack up the car the passenger car of the fan that they needed the tires and they take the tires off the guy's car and then they would run them for a while on the track and they go put the tires back on the guy's car and there was one particular guy who said what are you doing you're taking my tires he said well we just we just need them for a little bit to run and they were going to take money out of their wallets to buy the car, the guy's tire. He said, no, no, you don't have to buy my tires. I just want to see them on the racetrack. If you'll get me a pit pass, <laughs> so he was like, no worries. We'll get you a pit pass. So they took the guy to their pits and he was like cheering on this car that was running probably, I don't know, 50th. Right. And you know, he, I don't care about the money. I just want to see my tires run on the racetrack. So they, used his tires and then when the race was over they put his tires back on his car and he drove it home that's the true story can you imagine today i mean you know let's let's take let's take this down or take it to up another notch let's take a you know the, the lowest level grassroots racing that's out there can you imagine some guys you know going out there and saying oh i need a tire well i'm gonna go out in the in the you know in the parking lot and you know just kind of borrow a couple of tires yeah, from my car. That's the way they presented. It, yeah. They're going to yeah, borrow that guy, the guy, Nobody will know the difference, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's really true. That's what they did because they, back in those days, it was a true stock car. It was not mm -hmm. a race car like you see today. So the car, the tires and the wheels that were on that particular Oldsmobile or Buick or Lincoln, if you have it, was exactly what was in the infield. So they just take a jack and take the center blocks and put the car on the center blocks and take the tires for 50 laps or whatever. And then when they wore them out, they go put them back on the guy's car, <laughs> hoping somebody not see them do it or somebody wouldn't be asleep in the back seat. Or if they were, they just be careful and not wake the guy up. I guess it's, <laughs> it's honestly true. That's exactly what they did. And, and I got it from a, and I would not, doubt Jenny Dunleavy. He was a fine, good Christian man and he would not right. lie to me. So that's right. That's he was right. a good man and I well, had no reason to doubt him. I'll it, tell you, it was yeah. fun back in those days. That's right. I'll tell you when you started, you said the word cinder black for the first time that my eyes started twitching and I'll tell you why there's a funny story to this. When you said they, they jacked up and put the, the car on cinder blocks, that was like back in 80, I think it was 86. I think it was 1986 or 87. Uh, I had a Toyota Supra at the time and my wife was driving it. She took it to work and the part she parked on the side street right next to the bank where she was, um, you know, work, working at. Well, she came out that one day uh, after work and she finds the Supra was jacked up on cinder blocks and two of my, my left side tires were both taken and the rims and all that kind of stuff, because the, those rims were pretty expensive and dummy me didn't have tire locks. So, you know, the, or wheel locks rather. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, when you said cinder blocks, my eyes started twitching a little bit, you know, I say, oh, I remember that thing, <laughs> you know, but. Yeah. But, well, what you do in that case is you go find a friend who has a car exactly like yours. <laughs> and then you take the tires off of his car with his permission and go get your car and put the tires on your car, take it home and then take the wheels off that your car, put them back in his car. 
Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I don't even remember. I mean, we lived about, oh gosh, we probably were about not even a mile from uh, where we lived at, you know, her bank, the bank she worked at at the time was not even a mile away. And I don't even remember, I, I'm pretty sure we, I remember we towed the car to her parents' house, which was also a mile in the opposite direction. But I don't remember how they did because like I said, they took the two left side tires. So I, I seem to recall maybe the, the tow truck driver may have uh, taken the right front off and put on the back left, and then they just jacked it up and towed it that way or something. But uh, that 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 uh, that yeah, that will be a one of my bigger stories in my lifetime mm-hmm. if they ever tell but, my story. You know how that happened though too. But so, you, but you can't you can't really do what they did in 1950 today because the Gen Seven wheels and yep. tires and all that probably. I don't know though. I don't know though. Because, well, no, not with the center hub thing. Yep. Not you can't do it with that. But exactly. You know, but it, so there you go. That's, that's a good story. I love that story. Mm-hmm. All right. We got one more segment to go here on episode 45 of a lifetime in NASCAR. And you know, we like to talk about, we call it our track of the week. And a lot of these tracks are, you know, they're no longer with us or, you know, maybe the, some of them are still are in, in, uh, in business, but uh, this one is a trek I've heard of, but I never, you know, saw any races there either, you know, in person or on TV it's Augusta International Raceway. Ben, tell us about Augusta International Raceway. Okay, well, this is a very interesting racetrack, Jerry. Actually, two, a track within a track. Uh, Augusta International Raceway was a half-mile oval and also a, a road course. And you think, well, how in the world could that be? Well, it was, t- it was like I said, a track within a track. Mm-hmm. And, it you know, they had a lot of races on the little half-mile track in NASCAR history. It was a half-mile uh, host that hosted grand national events or what would be today cup series events from, from 1962 to 1969, uh, during, and had 12 races with eight different winners there. Joe Weatherly was the uh, first winner there on June 19th, 1962. We're talking about the little small half mile track mm-hmm. and he was driving for Bud Moore. Uh, and so lots of different drivers, you know, one on the short, the small little track, Bobby Isaac won there, Bobby Allison won there. Uh, I think David Pearson also, but then uh, uh, Dick Hutcherson was also another driver that won there. But then when we talk about the the road course, so this is where it gets a little bit interesting. It was a three mile road course, so that's really it's kind of long uh, to have a, a a race there uh, on that type of track. But November seventeenth, nineteen sixty three, they had a race called the Augusta Five Ten. Can you imagine a 510 <laughs> mile race on a road course? Okay. Hey, that if, we is have a an Aaron, if, if we have a road race called course. the Aaron's 499, well, we can have a race called the 510, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But I mean, doing that on a road course, I mean, that is a long, long race on a road course. Yes. And so they're like, okay, we're going to do 510 miles on this thing. And it's three miles in length. So as it turned out, uh, that went from 12 noon to 5 PM. That's five hours. Yep. And it only covered 417 miles in that 500 minute in that five hour time span. So they quit for darkness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it was like, well, okay, well that plan didn't work out so good, but fireball Roberts was the winner of that particular race that day. And sadly that was his last victory because he lost his life the next May at Charlotte motor speedway. Uh, like we talked about early in the broadcast, but, uh, 
Yeah, and and it was just a, a, a really nice racetrack. Actually, it had uh, you know all the modern amenities. It but all the all the uh, uh, grandstands and such were just positioned right at the start finish line. They didn't have any kind of grandstands around any of the turns in the track, other than just right there at the start finish line. And uh, the track, like I say, it lasted until about uh, well late well, 1969 into 1970, and uh, then it, you know, it saw its demise and it went away. There's still part of the uh, the Augusta International Raceway track itself, kind of in that area, but it's it's like other tracks is sort of being developed into other things now. But uh, yeah, but it, but here's a, here's an interesting fact I found on this particular track. And I think see if you can re- put this in your mind. This the, it was spread out enough that you could actually put the Daytona International Speedway inside of this road course. Okay, that's how that's how wow. big it was. Wow. So can you? I mean, you've been to Daytona a yes. zillion times, like I have. Right. Okay. So if you could hypothetically airlift the Daytona International Speedway, you could sit it inside of this track. It was that big, and. That's why they had all the the uh, grandstands in one area, I guess, because it was just so mammoth. It was so such a huge track, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so I just found it to be interesting. I mean, I've been reading up on it a little bit, and uh, so it, it it did serve its purpose. I mean, it has some great races there, especially on the short tracks. Uh, it brought a lot of, you know, economy, uh, you know, to that area and a lot of people loved it. And yeah. So, I mean, but I, I just thought it was interesting that they ran 500, tried to run 510 miles there. Uh, and they only had 16 cars at the finish that day, but still 510 miles is a lot for a road course. That's why you don't see it, uh, today on these road courses, it would take forever and ever to run miles you know, on the road course. Well, Ben, so. I'm trying to wrap my head around this though. It's a half mile oval with a three mile road course. So was the, the other, it was, I mean, it was, you could run one. I mean, yeah, it's two tracks. Oh, it's two. Oh, okay. That's yeah. where I was getting thrown at because I'm saying, how can you put a three mile road course in the infield of, an, of a half mile oval? I'm thinking Bristol. Can you put a no, three no, mile no, road no, course in Bristol? <laughs> that kind of thing. Okay, no, that it's, makes it's sense. Two tra- you could go, they, they had tra- they had races on the half mile or on the road course. I got you. Okay, that's okay. Okay, let me wipe the egg off my face with that. So, but, <laughs> but that's interesting though. You know, and that's that, that's uh, one of the unfortunate things about progress, as we like to call it, because you know, unique tracks like that where you have two different tracks, essentially, I guess, side by side or right next to each other. You know, they they were there for you know uh, a given period of time, and then they're no longer with us. I mean, you know, we, I know we talked a couple of weeks back about Ontario and Riverside. You know, great tracks that you know just really weren't around that long. I mean, what was it? Um, uh, I always get these two confused. Was it Ontario that was only around for I think ten or eleven years, and then yeah, yeah, and then and then they developed that into a huge shopping area. I mean, right? Yeah, Ontario was a magnificent beautiful beautiful racetrack that was a carbon copy of indianapolis motor mm-hmm. speedway beautiful linen tablecloths speedway clubs 
China. It was beautiful, but it was in the wrong era of racing. If yeah. it was around today, it'd be perfect. And even in the mid, like eight, late 80s, 90s, it would have been perfect. But it, it, when they opened the place, they had to basically have every seat filled for every, like, I don't remember what the number was. It was like 282 days of 365 days of every year for the next 10 years or something crazy to have to make it break even. I mean, they, they made it great, but they, there was no chance of having that many seats filled that long. You know what I'm saying? It was in the wrong era. It just didn't, it was beautiful though. And I never had the honor of going out there. I was too, I wasn't writing and I was too young when it was, uh, when it was in operation, but now if you go in that area to find it, you would be really hard pressed to find any markings, any track, any asphalt. It's amazing how you wouldn't be able to find it now. Well, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's amazing. You couldn't find it. Well, you know, you raise a really good point in, um, you know, a mutual friend of ours, the sadly he passed away a couple of years ago, the late Louis Brewster, who uh, was a sports editor out there on the West coast, uh, you know, in, in uh, San Bernardino and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, several other uh, newspapers out there. I remember this is going back, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so. Uh, we, we got into conversation. We were actually at a drag race in Pomona and we got into conversation about Ontario uh, Motor Speedway. And I said, you know, where was it, Louis? And Louis actually drew me a map. And I wish I would have kept it. I never did, but he drew me a map. And he said, okay, you know, this restaurant here is where turn three was, or this, you know, building here is where turn one was or what have you. And so I took him up on it. He gave me the map and I went out there and, you know, I tried to envision in my mind, cause I've never been there. And, you know, I think I may have watched a couple of races on TV, what have you, but I, I just, I tried to envision where the track was at and didn't do too good a job of envisioning it, but he I mean Louis was, you know, his where he, his recollection was was spot on. I mean, he knew mm-hmm. virtually every foot of that racetrack where things were at. And like you said, it's too bad that they they eventually went out of business, but you know, that's yeah. yeah. Well, good. I'm sorry, Jerry, just to add a little bit more to the Augusta International Raceway uh, mm-hmm. we were talking about. There is something now called the Augusta International Raceway Preservation Society. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, in that taking that area now. It's 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 basically a complex uh, for a learning area adjacent to the Diamond Lakes Community Center, where it's it's basically uh, you know for outdoor learning area that uh, you know a green space area mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So uh, you know for young folks uh, to educate them. Uh, on who, what, when, where, and why. This is something I'm reading here to you. So uh, it is it's, it's sort of a preservation uh, area now uh, to educate uh, people who want to kind of know what was there and a little bit about the racetrack, that kind of thing. But I mean, just looking at a map or looking at, at what it looked like, I mean, it was a huge area, three-mile racetrack area. So there's a lot of space inside of where it was. But yeah, I just, I would have loved to have seen it. And there is, I think, a museum area there too, and, and honoring some of the past race car drivers. And it'd be kind of fun, like on the way down to Talladega, a lot of times we go I-20 through Augusta. So mm-hmm. it might be kind of neat to stop in there to go a little early one day and try to find it and kind of take a look at it. But uh, yeah, it's just amazing uh, that some of these racetracks 
that has had had so much history that's no longer there. And it's like, I mean, I, I enjoy uh, reading about so many of these racetracks that were some of these great wins were, and now they're just gone. I mean, sadly, they're just gone. So it'd be kind of neat to try to go back and find some of these. You know, you raise a really good point, Ben, because, you know, like when I tried to find, quote unquote, find Ontario Motor Speedway, um, I would love if there was a way that, you know, either maybe NASCAR or, uh, well, what is now IndyCar, which was back in the day was either USEC or CART. Um, I would love that somebody would just put together some kind of a, uh, for lack of a better word, a statue or some kind of a uh, plaque, something that, you know, maybe a freestanding edifice, if you will, that, would say this is where Ontario Motor Speedway, uh, you know, stood at one point or mm. where Riverside International Raceway was, you know, it's, it, there are so many tracks that we've, you know, I mean, he, right in my neck of the woods, and this is a little bit off the, the, this is not NASCAR, this is drag racing, but I mean, remember US 30 drag strip where the great ones run, 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 run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? I yeah. mean, that was my oh, yeah. initial uh, uh, baptism into racing was us 30 drag strip out in the, it's actually in part of Hobart, Indiana now, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, an unincorporated area. And, you know, I, right. I remember I went out there maybe about 10, 12 years ago, and it's now since been developed, but there was, the track was still there. Parts of the track, the drag strip was still there, but it was all covered with weeds and that kind of thing. I just mm-hmm. think it would be neat for, you know, fans to have some kind of a, you know, uh, like I said, a, a statue or a, a plaque or what have you that that say hey this is where history was made once you know where let's say you know like you know uh, you know uh, you know somebody would have won a particular race at a particular facility you know th- this is where you know Richard Petty may have won here or you know Dale Earnhardt may have won here or something like that I think right. well fortunately really at, at Augusta there is an area there where where it's pointed out where the start finish line right. was and and where uh there's there's some like I said there's a museum there and some buildings there so at least they're preserving and there's a large from what I'm seeing here there's a large area uh, showcasing where the drivers the drivers that have won on the track mm-hmm. and those types of things so they've they've done it right uh, for me that special racetrack that uh, in my personal life is Darlington Raceway that's where mm-hmm. I saw my first race at 11 1972 April 16th of 1972. And I'm 61 now. So that's what 50 years ago when I saw my first one. So, yeah, I'm so, so thankful that that racetrack is still there. But unfortunately, there's just a lot of tracks, as we talked about, that that are not. And, oh, my gosh, it'd be heartbreaking to if I had seen something at Darlington and it was a shopping mall now, that would be hard to, to go back to. Exactly. So I'm so thankful Darlington is still there because I've got a bazillion memories, not only as a fan, but as a writer, uh, a motorsports journalist there, that I mean, it's just a sacred piece of real estate to me. That That's just the track above all tracks for me. I love Darlington Raceway. It just is so personal to me. You know, my dad took myself and my two brothers and a couple friends there just as a Sunday afternoon thing to do, and it changed my life. I'm, I've been in it ever since. And I walked away that day at 11 years old saying, I know what I'm going to do with my life in some form or fashion. I know what I'm going to do, whether, and I tried driving a race car and that didn't work out for a little money. And maybe I didn't have any talent. I don't know. I guess (laughs) both didn't have talent or money. 
And then I, I tried working as a crew member for Richard Childress, and I did that. And then I got into journalism. So, I mean, it, my life, I walked away knowing at 11 years old what I wanted to do with my life. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, tremendous. And a lot of people struggle to find that thing that they want to do. I knew. And so Darlington is very special to me. Right. Well, is, how's that old saying go? Uh, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Exactly. And I haven't worked a day in my life. I really, <laughs> I mean, I just love NASCAR being a part of it, being, I mean, I can't tell you in words how much that changed my life. And so anyway, I just, I've been very fortunate, very fortunate. Right, right. Well, I know my wife has told me, you know, when, when it's my time to, uh, to pass on into the next life, um, although I told her I want to be cremated rather than having, you know, being buried, but she, uh, she's always said that if I was to be buried, she's going to find a way to either put a race car on the tombstone or something like that, because she just thinks that would be like a, uh, you know, the, the fitting le- end to my legacy that, you know, my life was about racing because, you know, I mean, yeah. I've been in all covered all sports, but, you know, I've said several times already in the podcast here over the last few months, you know, there's nothing like the NASCAR world, the racing world as a whole, the family, the racing family. I mean, you know, you, you can talk about how great, you know, other sports are, nothing holds a candle in my opinion to racing in the motorsports. Right. World. Well, the, the, the joke with us is that when I pass away, I'll be cremated and my, my son will drive the convertible and my wife will have a gin and tonic in one hand and, <laughs> and my ashes in the other. And we're going to go down the front stretch at Darlington. And I don't know, <laughs> we'll be on the pace lap. And after about three laps, I'll be gone. <laughs> so that's what we joke about. So anyway, I that's like where that. it all I started. Like- and that's where it might end. I don't know. But anyway. that, that is neat. That is a neat. I like that. I like that. Yeah. And then after about three laps, the cars will be flying by and you'll never know I was there. That's so. right. <laughs> or if, or if there's a, if there's a rain delay, then they got to bring the tracks dryers out and then there goes all the ashes. All there, the then I'll too. be gone. It's either that or stick me on the mantle and in the living room and the cat will knock me off. So either way. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And with that, Ben, we're going to put a wrap on episode 45 of a lifetime in NASCAR. I'll tell you, I mean, you know, every time I leave the show after we're done with the show every week, I always leave with this big smile on my face because we just have such a good time. I I really enjoy doing this. And, you know, I'm going to say this and I only get a chance to say this once a year. I'm going to see you next year, Ben. Yes, sir. Because <laughs> there won't be another. You know, we're just, this, this is the end of 2021, and we'll be back with the the episode number 46 of a lifetime in NASCAR next week when we'll, we will be in the year 2022. So, uh, on on behalf of my buddy Ben White, wishing everybody a very safe and very uh, uh, great New Year's Eve and a safe New Year Day. New Year's Day. Be careful with all the uh, the pandemic is going around, and hopefully, we all are going to have a much better year in 2022 than we've had in 2021 and 2020 as well too so amen all right ben listen my friend you take care we'll talk to you next year right here all right all right take care everybody we'll talk to you later
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.